Well, it's a privilege to be here. I think it's a year or so since I was here last time, and it's a, it's a joy to have fellowship with you. As we share this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, God's power, and that is something that, uh, as I listened to last week's sermon, it was well represented uh, in the various plagues that God brought on the people in Egypt. And uh, God is basically saying, hey, I'm God, you aren't. And that's a good lesson for us all to learn uh, at any stage in life. And what I want to do this morning is talk about how to learn, by, uh, learn to listen. Life comes in our listening. Words are important. And it's interesting how important words are. We can think of the, I, I just had no idea that Matt was in charge of the weather. You know, to just make that one statement, and bam oh, here we are, the rain has come. I'm going, whoa, I, I've got some prayer requests, buddy. <laughs> there we go, there we go. But it's interesting, you know, I, I, I think of myself, I, I read in First uh, Samuel, for instance, that um, uh, as Samuel grew, the Lord didn't let any of his words drop to the ground. Well, in my case, I've got words strewn all over the place. My words drop all over the place. And I think that's the question, you know, how do we live life? And the answer is we live life through the fabric of words. Our lives are woven with words. And I think it's helpful for us to understand how important words are. We, words can be unimportant, too. We can talk, for instance, about how Camus is doing in the football playoffs in Washington State. And you all go, what does that have to do with anything? Well, for people in Camas, it's important, but not for us where Aloha is uh, going to be doing great in the playoffs, we hope. But you see, there's a certain sense in what, which words have weight in some places and not in others. But some words are ultimately weighty. And I think it's good for us to recognize how important word, words are. For instance, uh, there was nothing. And God said, let there be light. And he spoke light into existence. You catch the, the power of words? Even in our own experience, we can say, um, isn't the weather nice? And someone may not even hear us, but if someone says, will you marry me? <laughs> A little more power in those kinds of words, aren't there? So that's what we want to do, is just explore how the power of God is offered, presented through words, especially as we take a look at the continuing set of plagues in Egypt, and um, that the whole challenge of listening uh, was before Pharaoh, and he wasn't a great listener. And we have, uh, we pick it up here in the middle of the plagues. I want us to take a look a little bit more at this question of words, though, before I plunge into Exodus. What we really have in the world today, I was just thinking, uh, you know, the word is out about Hillsborough's decision on sex ed. Well, up in Washington, in battleground, guess what? The opposite just happened. There's battles going on in terms of who's teaching what to whom. And these are really uh, contentious days because there's competing words, competing thoughts, competing values that are present all around us. And as we wrestle uh, with what words to accept and believe, we recognize that this goes right back to the very start. We mentioned Genesis 1. God spoke existence into being. Okay. We also recognize that God told Adam after he was created, Adam, everything that I've made for you is good, 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 and very good. Oh, by the way, there's one tree, just leave it alone. 
We'll call that forbidden. We'll just don't touch it, leave it alone. And what happened then is after that, God created Eve out of Adam. And then he approached Eve, the serpent did. This serpent, we don't know where he's from, but he is someone who has already crossed over into a realm called autonomy or independence. And he had words to offer to Eve, and Eve brought those words to her husband. That is, look at, you know, God said that if you eat of this fruit, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the serpent says, well, actually, that's not accurate. I've got a better word for you. I've got a word for you. That is, you will not die. In fact, what will happen is you can be like God. You can come out from being under God, and you can come alongside God. You can kind of treat God as a partner, um, equal. uh, Well, he's bigger than you are. He has more power. But in the end, you don't have to be under his words. You can step out from that, and you can have wisdom of your own. You can be like God. You can determine what is good and evil for yourself. Do you catch the words that are being used here? Some words are true and some words are not so true. And so that's where the battle really goes back to. Whose words are sound? Whose words do we trust? In fact, we find that ultimately in Romans chapter 10, 17, the whole question of what is faith? Faith comes from hearing, hearing the words concerning Christ. And that's what distinguishes us as Christians, that we are word people. We recall also, in the beginning was the word, John chapter 1. The word was with God and the word was God. And we start to recognize, boy, words are important because words are the reality that uh, that, that constitutes all that is. And words shape how the power of God comes out and shapes and changes and saves us as we become people of the word. So I just want to just set that out as context because there's lots here about the plagues, but in a way, what we listened to last week, for those of you who are here, um, we really got a clear picture, didn't we? God is in charge. The power of God is indisputable. There's no question about who rules the universe. And it's so striking that God is going to have to confront Pharaoh on that and clarify for him who's really in charge. So we start out with uh, the Exodus events back in an earlier stage. And I wasn't here to preach or teach this, but I want to just say that what we'll look at this morning is going to be the bookend that wraps up something that started back in chapter 4. So let me reference that just because it will clarify when you get a, a two bookends, you, you have this, everything that's included between the bookends is thematically central. And what we'll find is this, the first statement uh, that we launch with is in chapter 4. As Moses is told by the Lord, you will go back, and I'm picking it up in 421, uh, you will go back to Egypt and see that you do before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I've put in your power. Now Moses, as we saw uh, when that chapter was presented, uh, is a little hesitant. He's saying, I'm not eloquent, I can't speak, who am I, you know, and all these other things. And God says, look at the Lord, uh, I am the one that's going to give you words. Don't you worry about that. It's the words that I have that are going to make the difference. And here's what you shall say to Pharaoh. I'm looking at verse uh, 22. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Whoa, collectively. Israel the nation is to God his son, collectively. These are my people. I have borne them. These are the ones that back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, to Abram, I promise that through you, through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The promise that through the seed of the woman, back in Genesis 3.15, there would be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent and confront the lie that the serpent offered. You can be like God. And so that promise is coming down, and now it's a confrontation between Pharaoh's son and God's son. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And guess what? We're going to reach that point where God's confrontation against Pharaoh reaches that ultimate conclusion. Now, it, these are words that will be used, and as we go to where we are, uh, which happens to be the seventh of the plagues, uh, in chapter 9 of Exodus, we find that God is uh, bringing pressure on a man who is living according to the lie. Remember what the lie is? You can be like God. Who does Pharaoh think he is? He's God. He is, uh, he's a localized God. Okay, he's the God of the region of Egypt. He's the divine king. He is the ruler. And as God, he also orchestrates a world which has lots of other gods. We have Apis, the bull god. We have Ray, the sun disk god. The idea is the bull god would have in his horns this sun disk. And so you can go, for instance, to the British Museum and see the archaeological remains of this time uh, there, and you'll see this disc in the horns of this bull god Apis, and that's supposedly the sun disc. And you'll have frogs representative of the Nile and the deity of the Nile providing life and so on. And so as we've seen, God has been ready to confront all of the false gods, but the ultimate false god that is being confronted is Pharaoh, who then is a poor listener, now, if God comes and speaks to any of us, will we listen immediately and say, yes, Lord, whatever you say, I'm ready to do that? Well, I hope so, but that's the question that we have before us. How good are we as listeners? Let's just say, Pharaoh, if we're going to talk about, say, a clock, uh, and we're moving you know, to, say, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, all the way to 12 o'clock, I would say that he, so far as we come to him in plague number 7, has not moved very far in his... Um, I don't know what we call it, um, I don't know, change-o-meter? Is there such a thing? Faith-o-meter, change-o-meter? His change-o-meter has not changed much. And that's what God is doing. He's giving words to say, you need to change, buddy, because your view of reality is false. Let me talk a little bit before I even get launched. I've got so many things to say here. I was telling Matt, I don't know what to do here. There's so much to be talked about here. And, and, and the plagues are really sort of the lesser element here because it's just one after the other. God's in charge, God's in charge, God's more powerful, God's more powerful, God wins, God wins, God wins. 
So we have that as a series, but what we want to get at is beneath that, there are realities that we have to wrestle with, and that this is really a competition of power, but the power is expressed through words. And as we take a look at learning how to listen, the question is, why do we not listen very well? Why did Pharaoh not listen very well? And the answer is because of false notions that block change. And in Pharaoh's case, it was that he viewed himself as the God of the Egyptians. And when the true God comes in and says, let my people go, well, what's Pharaoh going to say? Let me think about this. You want me to let my labor evaporate? The economic basis for most of what I'm getting here financially, resourcing-wise, that free labor is what I count on to make life work here in Egypt? I mean, my people would have to be working if I didn't have Israel here working. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How can I, as a good king, as a godlike figure, oh, heavens, I don't know what you're trying to tell me, Moses, but you make no sense whatsoever. To catch the resistance comes from a point of view, and the point of view is well and deeply established that now has to be confronted by a new point of view that God is offering through his own words. And so the question is, what is blocking? We talk about the hardness of heart, and that's one of these things that creates lots of, oh, I don't know, acid indigestion for theologians. Who changed Pharaoh's heart? You know, he was hardened, his heart was hardened, and um, God hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, his heart was hardened in the passive tense. So what's going on there? And actually, it's ten times that it says God hardened his heart. Ten times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it's kind of at least a, kind of a balanced thing. But what I want to suggest here is that we have to look at this a little bit differently and ask the question, did God ever change Pharaoh's heart? No, the material, the substance of what Pharaoh believed never changed. The question was, what did he do as he acted or didn't act on what he believed. So, so God is not manipulating Pharaoh. He's inviting Pharaoh to a new point of view, but in fact, Pharaoh has no interest in having his heart changed. Okay? Let me give you an example of this. I, and I think what we do is, here I'm going to sound a little bit like a, a college prof. I remember being a college prof. People would listen to me when I said, now this will be on the test. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So, so what I want to do is tell you some things here that may or may not be useful, but I, I hope it'll be useful in terms of how does God work. We talk about the double agency of God, okay? Genesis 50, 20, I don't know if you're familiar with that, 19 and 20, where Joseph, after dad dies, uh, Joseph is with his brothers. His dad was Israel, or Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Back before they, back in Genesis, the end of Genesis, chapter 50, 20, they came to him and said, hey, brother, you know, maybe dad forgot to tell you, but he told us to tell you not to kill us. <laughs> and because they're conscious of the fact that what they had done to Joseph years earlier may come back to haunt them. Now that God has uh, taken Israel away, uh, maybe Joseph is now going to pay them back. And what is it that Joseph says with remarkable God-given wisdom? As for you, my dear brothers, you meant what you did for evil. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive till today. Get that double agency, the good side. What's the worst thing that ever happened in human history? 
that God sent his son and we crucified him. What's the best thing that ever happened in human history? That God sent his son and he died for our sins. Do you catch that? So I think in some ways we may, we may be too disturbed over things where God works everything together for good to those who believe in him, who trust in him. But it doesn't feel like good when we find things go badly for us because of our faith in Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to you know, get that? You catch the double agency issues? So when we talk about the hardness of heart issue, guess who's really responsible for being hard-hearted? Pharaoh is. Guess who's responsible for lifting up Pharaoh and using him as an example for us today that God is in charge and no human is ever in charge? Well, that's God's plan, isn't it? That's his purpose. So to get that two-sidedness, and I think it's that kind of context that we have to recognize that, yeah, God, God hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. His heart was hardened. But God never did anything to manipulate him. Another place, and you may want to read this um, with this time this afternoon um, that you'll have, those of you who are Seahawks fans, since they don't play till tomorrow night, take a little Bible reading time. Wouldn't that be a novel notion? And here's what you could do, is go to Isaiah and read the first six chapters of Isaiah. It's so striking. Isaiah is this love book, this book of God's love being expressed to his people by the great, great prophet who covers so much ground. And it starts out with God saying, you know, I called you, I wooed you, I made you my people, talking to Israel, Judea. He says, I've given you my heart, and yet you've become faithless to me. You've become like a prostitute. What went wrong? Though your sins are, are, are scarlet, I can make them as white as snow. I can make them like wool. Oh, that you would come to me. Oh, you people, he goes on by chapter 5, he, he says, I made you to be a, a beautiful vineyard, and I gave you the best planting, and yet you never bore any good fruit. What went wrong? Why are you so hard-hearted? It doesn't use that language quite yet, but that's what we're starting to discover. The people have had God as their God, but they have not responded to him. And we get to chapter 5, and it reminds me of the battleground Hillsboro debate. Woe to you who make evil good and good evil. Woe that you turn darkness for light and light for darkness. Oh, wait and see how this is going to turn out. You see, there's this confrontiveness in God, and he's saying that to his people, Israel, and saying, where are you? And finally, chapter 6. It's an interesting chapter in it that it seems so starkly different than chapters 1 through 5. 1 through 5 is God saying, what's gone wrong with our relationship? So he says to Isaiah, okay, Isaiah, here's your calling. And it gets to see God high and lifted up. Well, one of the mysteries of the Bible is that God can be seen and not be seen. That is, there's a God who is seen. Yahweh can be seen. In Exodus 30, uh, 24, they go up on the mountain. And they get to see God. Wow, that's coming up. That's, that's in the future. They get to see God, and there he is on the mountainside. Oh, chapter 30. 33, what does it say? God says to Moses, earlier in the chapter it says, who used to go and see God face to face, but it says, no one can see me at any time. Wait a second. Uh, I thought we could see God. 
Didn't they? The elders of Israel went up and saw God. No one can see me at any time. And that's a, that's a tradition all the way through the Bible, that no one ever gets to see God. It's included in the New Testament. Now, it's a good thing we're Trinitarian, because guess what? It says in John chapter 1, not only does it say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, which, by the way, was speaking of Jesus Christ, and then goes down to verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The God who is in his bosom at his right side, who is next to him, part of him, he has made him known. So anytime we have a God walking on two legs, Old Testament or New Testament, guess who we have there? That's the pre-incarnate Christ. That is the Christophany, a theophany. And he's the one who is speaking and communicating in tangible and practical and real terms, even as the Father's word is what he is revealing to us in the New Testament. Go to the road to Emmaus, and what does Jesus do? Gives a quiz and says, do you not get that I'm in the Old Testament? You guys, get ready for the eternal life to come. Recognize that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Philip, do you not get it? So these are the kinds of realities that God wants to give to us, but sometimes we're slow to hear. Sometimes we're just interested in our own stuff and just don't have time to say, God, tell me what you're like and tell me what you want and who are you and how shall we live then? So we get to chapter 6. We see God high and lifted up in his throne room, Isaiah 6, and the prophet gets to see him and he says, woe is me, I can't speak. Oh dear, I'm an unclean man, unclean lips. And he takes a piece of coal out of the fire, the throne room of God, and cleanses him. And he says, now here's your job, Isaiah. I want you to go out and I want you to speak to this people, chapter one through five people. The upside down, right side up, confusion people. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell them the truth. I want you to speak again and again and again. And I want you to confront them until their hearts, hearts become so hard that they're just baked like a brick because the truth is going to confront them for their unbelief and their unfaithfulness. And so that they will not be able to hear because they've got hard hearts. So go there, to, if you're wrestling with the issue of what is God doing with hard hearts, the answer is he wants us to know and respond to the truth. But if we don't want to hear the truth, he'll bake us hard and say, I'm going to make you brittle and then I'll break you. So God's words are really at the heart, dare I say, of what we're going to look at here this morning. So I better get into the text itself here. You're going to say, well, this guy's wandering all over the place. So what we want to do is get into um, the reality that for 400 years, the people of Israel had not heard from God. Why was that? Because God told them they needed to be incubated in Egypt for 400 years. And we get that from um, when uh, Abram believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness back in Genesis chapter 15. He believes God and he says, but I can't give you the land. This land is going to be your land, but I can't give it to you for four generations. And we understand afterwards he meant 400 years because the sin of the Amorites isn't complete yet. Well, the sin of the Amorites isn't complete? Well, God tends to have a broad plan, and he will not confront people who are good and smash them or hurt them or, you know. It's basically saying, I'll give you a chance and then another chance and another chance and another chance, but when I can no longer speak to you and have you respond at all, then I'm going to confront you. I'm going to break and shatter your circumstances. 
And so after 400 years, it's now time for Israel to be brought out of the incubator, Egypt, and to go back and take the land over and to drive out the ungodly, faithless Amorites, the people that had a chance but despised it and turned their backs on God wholeheartedly, completely. So with that 400-year period, why was God not speaking? Well, the fact is, God doesn't have to keep repeating himself. When he speaks, he speaks for all of eternity. When he says something, it, he expects it to be remembered. And it's the last words that God had for Joseph in Genesis 50, 24. It says, God will visit you and bring you back. That's what Joseph says from God. You're going to go into Egypt. God will visit you and bring you back. The time has come. And so now when we get to Exodus 400 years later, they're going, oh, yeah, God, oh, we, oh, I remember, yeah, we had that promise, but that was back when Joseph was a big figure and we were in a higher standing and now we are slaves. That just seems so long ago, so far, far, far away. How could that still apply to today? And Pharaoh himself, who was the son of, son of, son of, the earlier Pharaoh, who respected and responded to God, under Joseph. Now we have a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, who doesn't know God, and has forgotten all of those words. And so what we have is the God who has spoken, his words still stand, and he says, yep, now I'm going to come back and fulfill what I've said before. And that's why we today will still look back to words that were said, spoken thousands of years ago, because they still count. The words of God endure. They last. And so as we come to this time of the Exodus, those words are now being fulfilled and God is ready to confront the people of Israel. So we go to the first of the plagues and it was good to have those read. We pick it up in verse 13 and we find here that God is ready to confront with yet another plague. This one is going to be the seventh plague and this is going to be the plague of hail. And let me just reread it. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up, early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, here's our key thought, thus says the Lord, which is to say, you better listen, this is going to be on the exam. Okay, you've got this one, you better be taking notes, you're going to have to be accountable for this one. The God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. You see, right now, in Pharaoh's view, he's God, and the people are meant to be brought out from under his authority to the greater authority of the true God. And Pharaoh doesn't want that to happen. And so that's what God is saying. You better wake up because I have got a purpose that I will fulfill. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, as my ESV puts it. But guess what it says in the margins? on your heart. You see, what God will do is if we are stubbornly, persistently ignoring him, he says, I'm going to go to your heart. And guess where Pharaoh's heart is in his dynastic values? He wants to have his future insured. And we've already had a clue back in chapter 4 that it is going to be the confrontation of his son, the death of his son that will ultimately confront the dynastic ambitions of this godlike figure, Pharaoh. And so what he does is he says, okay, here's the reality. 
You need to learn that there's no, no one like me in all the earth. I could have put you to death already, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and I will not, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause a very heavy hail to fall upon you. And so we get the next plague. But what's really important is God is saying, I want people to be able to remember these events so that in the future they can hark back and look back to me. So if we, for instance, were to go ahead to, um, uh, let me just skip ahead here to uh, Exodus uh, as they've come out of Israel or out of Egypt, uh, Moses will meet with his father-in-law Jethro in the wilderness. And Jethro said, I'm looking at chapter 18, verse uh, 10 of Exodus, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Get that? Oh, your God, my dear son-in-law, is greater than all the gods of Egypt. I wouldn't have thought that. But now I accept that. What do we find in the book of Samuel? Just to pick another example as uh, the Ark of the Covenant is taken out during the days of Samuel and they're fighting with the Philistines, remember that occasion? And the Philistines hear the great roar that comes from the people of Israel as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the camp. And what do the people say there? And I'm picking it up in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Philistines were afraid, and I'm picking it up in verse 7. And they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. See, the word is out. And that's what God is doing with the Exodus plagues. He's saying, in case the world is forgotten, I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm in charge. And I'm going to give you new words to say, let my people go, and if you don't, I'm going to curse you with a set of plagues. So let me just walk through very quickly. We're not going to camp on the plagues because it's just one case after another of God saying, I'm in charge. So here we have the case of the, the hail. And what's interesting in verse 20 in chapter, going back to Exodus 9, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses in light of the promised hail. Whoa, we've learned by now, their faith meter their, their, their response-o-meter has moved dramatically, hasn't it? Because they've seen some actions that can only come from God. And Pharaoh is stuck up here, but boy, have they moved. And so they start to move their animals. And where did these animals come from? There was already a, a a plague in which the livestock died, they probably bought them from the Israelites who in Goshen hadn't lost any of their cattle. So they, oh, well, can we buy some? Well, now they've got some cattle. Guess what? One more time, get them in undercover or they're going to be gone. And so Pharaoh, of course, is not particularly responsive. So Moses stretches out his staff and terrible thunder, lightning, Hail comes down and struck everything, and only in the land of Goshen, I'm in verse 26, where the people of Israel lived, was there no hail. And Moses, Pharaoh then says and calls Moses and said to him, this time I have sinned. Do we hear how he's speaking into his heart? 
Now the heart of Pharaoh is ready to say, I am a sinner and you are bigger than I am, but I still don't want to respond to you. What I want to do is start to negotiate an arrangement with you. You, you, you seem to be bigger than I am. Can we work something out? I really can't lose my labor force. Reading between the lines here. And, um, and God responds, verse 20, but as you and your servants, dear Pharaoh, understand, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. And so guess what? They lost the remainders of their crop. Only the crops that were yet to grow as the seasonal development occurred would still be a, a left for, guess what? The next plague. So we go to chapter 10. Then Moses, uh, Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants doesn't change his mind. He simply makes it hard, so that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them that they may know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. So we have yet another lesson to offer. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, here's the key word, thus says the Lord. It's going to be on the exam. You better be ready. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Get the, the point here. What is it to say that you're God, I'm not God, it's to humble ourselves. That's the, if you want to know how to live life well, just start to say, God, you're God, I'm not. I need you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I depend on you. And so Pharaoh hasn't reached that point, and he is then confronted with the locusts. And the locusts come in, and they basically strip off everything that's left, and... Um, it's the worst thing that could come on them. I don't have time to read it, but you can read it on your own. Verse 7, chapter 10. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the man go. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Okay, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones do you want to have go with you? Oh, Moses says, Well, everyone. Our young, our old, our, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds, because we are going to serve the Lord. We're coming out from under you. We're going to come under God's leadership. And you don't have a say in that. Do you understand that? And Pharaoh didn't understand that. His listening-o-meter, his heart-o-meter, was still stuck up here and saying, I cannot conceive of having God have that kind of control in my circumstances. And so, uh, with that confrontation... Uh, Pharaoh says, nope, not going to go for that. That's not going to work out. And um, I'll let your men go, but I won't let you take your families. And then uh, uh, God says, okay, stretch out your hand. And he, uh, the, the locusts come, eat what they can eat, and then the east wind comes and blows them all away. Now, in the midst of all that, we have that the land has been devastated. We pick it up here in chapter 10, verse uh, 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called um, Moses and Aaron says, once again, I have sinned against the Lord, God, your God, and against you. Now notice he doesn't declare him as my God. Against your God, 
Okay, I violated your God. There are lots of gods, and your God is a pretty big God. I'm starting to be convinced. Can we work something out here? Can we make an arrangement? Can I sort of acknowledge that he's God, and I'm still wanting to be in charge of my territory as well? Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove, remove this death from me. So he went out, uh, Moses went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and Sure enough, the, the locusts were driven away. But in verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. There was nothing changed in Pharaoh's heart other than the fact he was realizing he was up against it and he did not let the people of Israel go. Which sets us up for yet another plague, the plague of darkness. Now it's interesting, in this plague, there's no call or warning of this one coming. It's because it's clear Pharaoh's not listening. But remember what we talked about, the sun god? What's a good way to show that the sun god isn't so powerful? How about bringing darkness? Now, even today, commentaries will wrestle with this. Well, I don't know, it must have been the Khamsin, the great big sandstorms. I was in Sinai Peninsula, and we had the Khamsin come. This big wind with dust is just big billowy clouds. It could be that, it could be, you think about the volcanic activities that could darken the whole earth in Spokane after St. Helens, where my folks lived. It, all the lights came on after the uh, volcano erupted. So we don't know what the particulars were. All we know is this, that for three days it was dark and they're going, well, this can't work for us. We, we can't live without light. And the answer is, that's right, and who gives you light? It's not Ray, it's God. And I'm going to confront you and make you recognize that. And so the ninth plague of darkness comes, and Pharaoh says to Moses, go serve your God, your little ones may go with you, but, but leave the flocks in your herds, let them remain behind. So to catch that, he's, he's, he's moving, he's progressing, but he's really not wanting to shift away from the fact that he thinks he's a God, he thinks he's in charge, and he really doesn't want to listen. He wants to negotiate. And Moses says, nope, nope, all of us have to go. Uh, we're going to take the animals. We're going to let God decide once we're out from under your control which animals he wants to have sacrificed. Sorry, Pharaoh, this will not work. We're going to have to yet face yet another confrontation. And what we have here is now, and apparently this is done in an overlapped fashion with the content of chapter 10, the darkness, is, is Moses comes in and talks to him. At the end of that confrontation in chapter 10, Pharaoh says, you don't get to see my face again. And it also tells us in chapter 11 that Moses goes out in a fit of anger, and that seems to be the finale of their conversation, of God giving his word through Moses to Pharaoh. And what he does is he warns them of the next plague, which is coming next week, next chapter. And that is, you and your son are held accountable. And your son, your dynastic future, is going to die because you have not listened. And also the slave, the lowest in the spectrum of, of your humanity here among your people who you're having authority over, they're going to lose their firstborn. Your animals will lose their firstborn. All the firstborn are going to die. Are you ready for that? Now it's interesting, it says all the people of Egypt 
had their, they've already spun around, they're favorable towards Moses and trusting in God. And when the people of Israel say, can you help us? We need some resources. We're going to go out from among you. And they give them resources freely. Who's, who's stuck and not moving? It's Pharaoh who's supposed to be a leader, but he's not leading, is he? Because he's not listening. He doesn't recognize the true power of God. And so we'll just finish it here. The day is coming, we're picking it up in chapter 11, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, and the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did these wonders before Moses, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So you have to come back to hear how that story ends. I think you may know. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? You know, what's, what's our current... What's our current response? I have to wrap this up. The reality is that God is still calling us to his word. Remember, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And what does Jesus say in chapter 8 to people who claim to be believers? Chapter 8, verse 30, many believed in him. Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you're truly my disciples, abide in my word, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But guess what these people said? Oh, 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 hold on, Jesus. We're ready to believe in you, but hey, we don't know that we, I mean, we're free. We've got free will. We're free. What are you telling us about we're not free? And Jesus said, well, anyone who sins, sins because they're not free. You sin because you're a slave to sin. Unless you're part of the family and set free from the other, the liar, there's no hope for you. And they immediately resisted him, even though they believed in him. Well, it sounds like they didn't really believe, and Jesus confronts that. He says, actually, the fact that you're not responding to my words means you are really not of me. If God were your father, he says, you would love me. As it is, you are your father, the devil. You do his desires. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks the lie. So even today, people who believe may not believe because the question is, if you believe, what do we do? We abide in his word and we become people of the word. And that's what distinguishes us. We say, you're God, I'm not. Apart from you, I can do nothing like the branch vine connection. I'm going to abide in your word. I'm going to abide in your truth. I'm going to abide in your love. And that's the invitation to us this morning. Are we ready to abide in the power, in the presence, in the communion that God offers us through Jesus Christ, his son. Abide in his love, abide in his truth. Know the truth and it will set us free. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are, <laughs> I just feel like a shotgun here scattering all these things out here. But Lord, one thing we have for sure is that when you speak, you tell us the truth. And when we respond to the truth, it sets us free. And as we abide in you and in your love, we become what we were meant to be. We get to enjoy you like we were meant to live. And we get the freedom that we long for. So thank you for your word in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your word back in the days of Pharaoh and Moses. Thank you for your unconquerable word that declares your power and your greatness. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.